Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, coming to you from uh, the very autumnal Mount Home, Tennessee, uh, in my office uh, at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is a proud, uh, well, the only uh, supporter of, uh, of this, uh, this Oncofarm podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Lorlatinib, which is the fifth TKI approved for anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or ALK. Uh, mutated or rearranged is probably the better term, non-small cell lung cancer. And this happened on November 2nd of 2018, so Friday, right after some of you may have already listened to the pod. Uh, and I know this pod's going to come out a little earlier than maybe the typical Thursday, but hey, there's a new drug, so uh, I feel like we ought to talk about this. So this was approved uh, for ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer patients who had um, already received an ALK TKI, whether electinib or seretinib, so second-line setting. If you had you know, a second-generation TKI like electinib, then this was approved in the second-line setting, or in the third-line setting for patients who had received crizotinib. So those patients would have had crizotinib, then either electinib or seretinib, and then gone on to receive um, uh, lorlatinib. Uh, I don't think anybody or only a very few had received brigantinib uh, in this study. And this is an accelerated approval based on tumor response. And this happens in the eyes of the FDA when there is a disease state, in this case second or third line ALK mutated non-small cell lung cancer, where there is no standard of care and any drug uh, that has a favorable uh, risk-benefit ratio, whereas risk being you know, reasonable toxicity, benefit being that it has any disease activity as measured by response rate. So whether or not this changes the natural history of disease in these patients is unknown, and that's why drugs approved in this way under an accelerated approval process require confirmatory testing to maintain their approval, generally. Uh, so this was study B7461001. So it was 215 patients, an overall response rate of 48%. Uh, only 4% complete response rate. So most of these were partial responses, and they also uh, talk about the intracranial overall response rate, only assessed at 89 patients who they had upfront uh, imaging in uh, of 60%, 21% being complete responses. So it does have CNS activity, and we'll talk about that as we get into it. Um, now, since this is the fifth, uh, you know, basically drug in this class. I'm not going to get into as much detail as I do. I figure if we've got three drugs in a class, I can really draw differences. But with five, you know, that, you know, you, you know, that, that, that needs to, that needs to be a lecture in class or something like that. So from a big picture standpoint, you know, the, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines, NCCN, uh, love them or hate them. That's what uh, I'm going to talk about here. But, you know, they basically give, you know, all four drugs as category one options for metastatic ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer. If you've got a stage two, stage three non-small cell lung cancer, you still get normal treatment, um, surgery, chemo or chemo radiation, uh, whatever you normally would. There's no role at this point for target therapy uh, in patients with non-metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. So they have electinib, crizotinib, seretinib, and brigantinib, all as category one, which is the highest designation they have. However, electinib is the preferred of those four, which seems like maybe that should be like a higher than category one, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Uh, the reason electinib is the preferred of those four is it does have head-to-head -head data compared to another ALK TKI, crizotinib. So it has a PFS benefit of an absolute increase, about 20% in median PFS compared to crizotinib. And that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August of 2017. Overall survival data is immature for that. 
So basically, if you've got somebody with metastatic, non-small cell lung cancer patient, nowadays, first-line treatment is electinib. And then, after that, it's a little bit like, you know, kind of treating chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. You use any of the other TKIs uh, that you think uh, may work based on, you know, susceptibility testing, if you can if you can do that where you are. So let's talk more about lorlatinib. It is a microcyclic compound, which uh, I guess in medicinal chemistry uh, talk just means big circle, macrocyclic compound. And if I'm able to, you know, if you look in the PI, uh, you can see the structure, but it, it looks very different than all the other ALK TKIs, and we'll, we'll see some of those differences here uh, in the drug. So, um, uh, you know, they, they call this a third-generation ALK TKI because it has increased potency, and if you, if you look at some of the preclinical in vitro data, you can see that it is more potent compared to the other ALK TKIs uh, in the laboratory. Uh, and it was designed specifically to have increased CNS penetration. That is one of the worries is this, as patients with, uh, you know, ALK um, rearranged non-small cell lung cancer, they tend to have recurrences in their CNS before they have systemic recurrence. So the idea is there's not enough drug into the CNS. Uh, and that's one of the reasons electinib is, is a very exciting drug. Uh, so uh, it does have more CNS penetration. More on that later as we talk toxicity. Uh, the package insert for lorlatinib um, lists the following kinases as targets or kinases that lorlatinib inhibits. ALK, specifically the G1202R mutation and the I1171T mutation. ROS1, TYK1, FER, or FER, FPS, TRKA, B and C, uh, FAC, FAK, FAK2, and ACK. That's a lot. Here's, here's brigantinib from the PI ALK, the same G1202R, and then a different L1196M mutation for ALK. So that's where I talk about you would look at the different mutations and why not, you know, in a second line setting, brigantinib made more sense or lorlatinib. That's kind of the role in therapy. So besides ALK and those mutations for brigantinib, also ROS1, IGF1R, which is insulin-like growth for insulin-like growth factor receptor, FLT3, and then some mutations and deletions of EGFR, Electinib, just ALK and RET. Certinib, ALK, uh, insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor, ROS1. Crizotinib, ALK, ROS1, CMET, or also a patocyte growth factor, and RON. Um, now, some of these older ones, you know, like crizotinib, the first one approved, may not have put as many out there. Or maybe lorlatinib really is that, you know, wide spectrum or broad spectrum at inhibiting these things. A little bit like tetracycline, a very large antibiotic with a, you know, uh, with four rings, I think, tetracycline, um, uh, is pretty wide spectrum as an antibiotic. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole lot more differences in the ADME between these drugs, um, but, you know, when you look at which specific mutations to ALK, brigantinib will work, you know, like the L1196M, and then lorlatinib, which has activity, and again, this is in vitro activity in mice, versus the I1171T mutation, that may be where you would use... Um, would use these drugs, not only in ALK, but potentially off-label now that, you know, the Foundation 1 CDX is, is FDA-approved um, for solid tumors in patients who have, you know, no other options. It's conceivable, I guess, that you could have a pancreatic cancer that has an ALK mutation uh, with a G1202R mutation, for which lorlatinib or brigantinib might be uh, an option. Um, but, you know, again, big picture here, this is a second or third-line drug for these patients mostly second line going forward. If you had a patient 
who's been doing well on ALK TKI therapy and, and got Krizotnib in the first line. It is on a second line agent now. Then Lorlatinib would be um, the best option in the third line, most likely. So moving into the warnings precautions, this is always what uh, interests me the most for new drugs. So the first one here is hepatotoxicity with strong 3A4 inducers, severe hepatotoxicity, which you know is a, is going to be a grade three or four toxicity. So presumably this was a PK study. So they were looking to see what happens when this drug lorlatinib, which is a three four substrate, as we'll talk about later, is given in conjunction with rifampin. You know the potent three four inhibitor the FDA generally uses or expects to be used to look for drug interactions with inducers. Well, ten of the twelve. Oh, and to back up, usually you're looking for. All right. So how much does rifampin decrease the concentration of lorlatinib? So how how much less effective would we expect lorlatinib to be? So this probably was pretty surprising uh, when they saw that 10 of the 12 patients, or 83%, had severe, so grade 3 or 4, hepatotoxicity as indicated by an increase in AST or ALT. So a grade 3 would be more than an AST-LT more than five times yield preliminary normal. Half of them had a grade 4 increase in AST or ALT, which is uh, a um, an amino transferase more than 20 times the upper limit of normal, which is getting up to 1,000, you know, 800, 900, depending on the reference of your lab. So why? My first thought is this is an inducer. There's probably a toxic metabolite you're forming really high concentrations of, uh, a little bit like uh, how alcoholics, uh, they deplete their glutathione stores, they take acetaminophen, and because they have upregulation, uh, or induction of CYP2E1, they end up with that NAPQ, that toxic, hepatotoxic metabolite. Thought maybe that was it, because the drug is metabolized by 3A4 and also UGT1A4, and the PI talks about M8, which is a benzoic acid metabolite. So maybe, and that's produced via oxidative cleavage, which sounds like what CYP3A4 would do. So maybe that is a toxic metabolite, and you get a whole bunch of it when you're on a potent inducer. Okay, I still stand that that's a reasonable theory. What the PI suggests Quote, a possible mechanism is through activation of pregnane X receptor, PXR, by lorlatinib and rifampin, which are both PXR agonists. And that's all I say. And I'm like, what is PXR? I've never heard of this. Pregnane X receptor? You can't, I mean, if you PubMed it, it like autocorrects to pregnant. I, you know, like this is not something that people are looking at. But there's a lot out there about it. Um, so I tried to teach myself about it, but this is like trying, you know, to teach... I don't know. <laughs> I'm stumped, to be honest with you. So I found some nice reviews. So I'm just going to read, uh, apologize for this. This is from uh, Peter Pavic, who is in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicity, the Center for Drug Development uh, in, Croat uh, in the Czech Republic. Sorry, looks like in Prague. So this is just from the abstract. Pregnant X receptor is a ligand-activated nuclear receptor that mainly controls inducible expression of xenobiotics, drugs, handling genes including biotransformation enzymes and drug transporters. It appears to be like the master control switch for activation of CYP3A4 and 2C9, etc. It seems like I should have heard about this. Um, nowadays, it is clear that PXR is also involved in regulation of intermediate metabolism through transactivation, transpression of genes, controlling glucose, lipid, cholesterol, bile acid, and bilirubin homeostasis. Uh, furthermore, I see, uh, I read that PXR is, is highly expressed in the liver and is now accepted as a, ma a master transcription factor of xenobiotic and drug-inducible expression of key genes. Um, so it, it looks to me 
after some research that when we think of a drug as inducing you know, CYP3A4, it does that by turning on perhaps pregnant X receptor, which is the first time I've seen this with the drug. And I read through a lot of package inserts for oncology drugs, the first time I've seen this. And I wonder if this is a new era of research. After all, uh, the pregnant X receptor was first described just in 1998, which is not that long ago. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school in 1998, standing on the sidelines while our team went to state in football. But I guess that doesn't matter here. Um, so, basically, the use of this drug is contraindicated with potent 3-4 inducers, that'd be rifampin, carbamazepine, phenytoin, things like that. Whether or not it has to do with all those drugs from an induction standpoint, or it's a pregnant X receptor thing, and why not these other drugs also turn on PXR? Uh, we don't know. We also don't know what to do with moderate inhibitors, which the PI says avoid use if you can, but if you have to, to monitor AST, ALT, or bilirubin. Uh, by the way, the 10 patients who did have this really high AST and ALT with this drug, it did return normal, but it did take quite a bit of time for that to happen. Um, so it's not every day you see something shocking like that um, in the package insert. Uh, whew, fun stuff. Uh, the next warning precaution in the PI is CNS effects. Um, now, unless you're a medicinal chemist, which I am not, uh, one of the ways that I kind of loosely judge how, how much CNS penetration do you get with a drug is looking at sometimes the CNS side effects. Now, yeah, you know things like nausea that are maybe listed as a CNS side effect that are probably independent of CNS penetration, but sometimes it can be a good marker. Um, now, before I talk about the CNS effects seen with erlatinib, we do have some data here. So there's the, the phase one study uh, for erlatinib, which is published uh, in Lancet Oncology uh, back in 2017, I believe, um, actually has data from four patients who had lumbar punctures. So we actually have CSF to plasma ratio for these for these four patients, and basically the average ratio of CSF, so cerebral spinal fluid concentration to plasma, uh, is about 70 is 0.75 or 75 percent. So think of it this way: if there, you had the exact same concentration in the brain tissue, in the brain, in the cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid, in the brain fluid as in the blood, the ratio would be one. You'd have, you know, f complete penetration, okay? In this case, it's like 75%. So the concentrations in the CSF in the brain are about 75% of what's in, uh, in the blood. Now, this is only four patients, and that's an average, but the standard deviation is plus or minus 16. You know, the range is from 61% to 96%. So, you know, it seems that that's probably fairly good CNS penetration and 54% of patients had some kind of CNS side effect, the median onset being 1.2 months. In single-dose studies, the drug has about a 24-hour half-life, so, and because of auto-induction, it might actually be shorter than that in people taking it all the time. So it takes some time still, uh, longer than reaching steady state, for most people to develop these toxicities. Uh, or it could be that was the next follow-up, was a month, one month later. Um, so here are some of the things that they saw. Seizures in 3%, hallucinations 7%. Changes in cognitive function, 29%. Uh, mood disorders, including suicidal ideation, in 24%. Speech disturbances, in 14%. Mental status changes, in 21%. Now, a couple caveats here. There's no placebo comparison. And these are patients previously treated in a disease that tends to recur in the brain who could have had prior radiation, in fact, could have actually had stable brain mets as defined by decreasing doses of steroids going into the study. So... 
perhaps some of this is disease, some of this is drug. It's hard to tell without you know a placebo comparison. Um, another thing, especially with regards to mood changes and suicidal ideation, is that chronic psych conditions, including suicidal ideation, was an exclusion criteria for this study, suggesting I I don't think that's a I don't think so. I'm going out on a ledge. I don't think that's a standard exclusion criteria for many studies. So maybe they they knew something about this as a as a potential side effect going into the study. Uh, moving on, the next warning: hyperlipidemia. All right, these numbers you can't get much higher than this. Ninety-six percent of people had an increase in cholesterol. Ninety percent had an increase in triglycerides. Um, that was a grade three or four increase for both hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia of eighteen percent, respectively. 80% of patients in the study required uh, some kind of drug uh, to treat hyperlipidemia. Um, so you got to do a lipid panel, including triglycerides, before starting the drug, one month, two months later, and then periodically thereafter. AV block, which seems to be a class effect for all these drugs, or bradycardia, was seen in 1%, grade 3 and 0.3%. In fact, the packet has dose reductions uh, for AV block, um, potentially leading to a pacemaker, you know, either stop the drug or put in a pacemaker, which eh, I've never seen that. I mean, that's, that's a little out there. So again, an EKG before treatment and then periodically thereafter. No QT prolongation seems drug, but you can see some bradycardia and, and AV block. Like almost all um, the lung cancer TKIs, you can see a risk of interstitial lung disease, 1.5% and like serious is 1.2%. So if it happens, it's going to be pretty bad. And then of course, uh, embryo-fetal toxicity. Other side effects. Um, so peripheral uh, neuropathy seen in 47%. About half of that was grade 3 or 4. Uh, no, sorry, not half. Very little. 2.7% was grade 3 or 4. Couldn't read my writing. Uh, vision disorders in 15%. That was one of the most common side effects early on with crizotinib. Uh, diarrhea, 22%. Nausea, 18%. And all of these now have grade 3 or 4 of less than 1%. Edema in 57%. Maybe they were on steroids. Again, we need to see a placebo group. Arthralgia, myalgia is about 20%. Hyperglycemia, 52%. Remembering PXR, how it was involved in uh, metabolism of lipids and cholesterol and bile and things like that. An increase in AST and ALT, 37 and 28%, respectively. Thrombocytopenia in 28%, but only 0.3% grade 3 or worse. Lymphopenia in 22%, uh, 3.4% of those being uh, grade 3 or worse lymphopenia. Um, so it's certainly a drug that has its, its fair share of toxicities. Um, uh, so it's certainly got quite a bit of risk and, you know, has that about 50% response rate, only 4% complete response in uh, a disease, uh, you know, progression on a TKI for non-small cell lung cancer where, where there is no standard of care. Uh, so just kind of, you know, um, talking about drug interactions, again, it's a no-no with potent inducers um, for 3 4 inhibitors. Hitraconazole is what was studied. It increased the AUC by about 42%. So if you're going to use this with a strong 3 4 inhibitor, the dose, which is 100 milligrams a day with or without food. I guess I failed to mention that earlier. Bad, bad, John. Um, you go, you do a 25% dose reduction down to 75 milligrams a day. Uh, there's no PPI or H2 or antacid effects, so people can take it uh, with their PPIs, which is uh, nice. Uh, the drug does, um, the preclin or the, the pharmacokinetic data suggests the drug undergoes autoinduction, and it is a 3 and 4 inducer. It decreases the AUC of midazolam, which is like the standard 3A4 probe to check for um, 
uh, interactions and induction interactions with 3 or 4. It decreased AUC by 64%. This would place in the moderate induction category. Uh, the FDA looks at 50 to 80% as a decrease in AUC as being a moderate inducer. A potent inducer would be more than 80%. So that's like rifampin, enzalutamide, apalutamide. Um, and because of that, the package insert says to avoid with narrow therapeutic index drugs. Well, what would that be? Well, the first ones that come to mind are rivaroxaban and apixaban, which are three or four substrates that have a narrow therapeutic index, meaning too much of the drug, and you bleed not enough, and you may have a stroke or DVT or PE. Uh, and this is even worse with a drug like rivaroxaban and apixaban that doesn't have uh, routine monitoring. So uh, unless you caught this interaction, you might not know that the patient uh, was having their 3 or 4 induced by lorlatinib and having lower concentrations of rivaroxaban, and then you don't know it until they come in with uh, a strange uh, embolic event or thrombotic event and not knowing what happened. It also is an inhibitor of the following transporters. P-glycoprotein, which I'm familiar with, uh, OCT1, which is organic cation transporter 1, OAT3, you can guess the A, it's anion, uh, MATE1, and then intestinal um, breast cancer-resistant protein, or BCRP. And then there's a whole list in the PI of all these other transporters I've never heard of, which is, I think we're going to see more and more of this testing and more and more potential interaction with these transporters. So more to keep uh, up on uh, if you're going forward. Uh, so that's, you know, that's lorlatinib. There's, there's a lot there for a drug that, um, you know, alk-mutated or alk-rearranged non-small cell lung cancer is maybe you know, two, three percent of all non-small, of all lung cancers or all non-small cell lung cancers. So you're not talking about a ton of patients, despite how prevalent non-small cell lung cancer is. Um, remains to be seen um, whether this drug will work its way up. This is how drug development should go in oncology. The drug gets approved, something like this, in say the second or third line setting. Then it gets tested in the first line setting, the way electinib was compared to crizotinib. So you'd love to see this drug compared to electinib. Whether or not we'll see that, uh, well, I'm not going to hold my breath, uh, but hopefully we will get that. Maybe a cooperative group will do that. Um, another thing I'll mention, uh, I, I, I said earlier that in the package insert, uh, they, there's, it's stated that this drug uh, inhibits ROS1, which is another mutation. For example, you could use crizotinib for ROS1 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. The pivotal study that got the drug approved had something like 295 patients in it, um, the approval only states data on 215, I think, which means there are, you know, like 80 patients out there who were ROS1 that was not included in the approval. So um, I don't know, I haven't seen the briefing documents if the FDA denied for ROS1 or more likely the drug company, whoever makes this, did not submit um, for an indication for ROS1, suggesting that either, you know, the risk-benefit ratio was not worth it. And I know from... Um, the abstract presented at ASCO, I think last year uh, in this, that some of these patients uh, in the ROS1 group, or no, this is from the phase one study, but some of these ROS1 patients were um, were previously untreated. So maybe this is just as good as crizotinib for ROS1 and, and more toxicity, I don't know. But even though uh, the PI says it inhibits ROS1, it's not approved for that, just to ALK. So that's lorlatinib. Um, next week, we're, you know, it's, it's election day today in the U.S., so you go on Twitter and you're listening to this today or in the next, I don't know, 20 hours, uh, you can vote on what next week's podcast is going to be about uh, unless we get like some new drug approved by the end of the week, which, you know, that tends to happen uh, in November. Tend to get a lot of drugs approved towards the end of the year. Thank you for listening. 
Find us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Review us. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.